to welcome to New Freedom, welcome to Position to Neutrality. Is there anyone in the room for the very first time tonight? Wow, not very many of you, most of you are veterans. Very good, welcome. So to, to the few of you who are here for the first time, you're liable to experience us just a little different than other meetings of other fellowships you may have attended. And the reason that's liable to happen is we intend for you to have a very different experience here. Okay, you, you know what's coming then, all right. It's a very, a very seldom that so few people acknowledge this is their first time. So. Um, anyway, what we do, we take a look at the suggested instructions for a step or so a week directly out of this book, and we use this book in 12-step recovery what? Process described by the authors of this book. It's been proven to work for addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances. Fair enough? Okay. And couple of housekeeping matters. Um, if you all, how many of you are members in the room tonight? Oh, good. There you go. There you go. Good percentage. So, you guys, men and women, you know that if you if you don't know, your families are welcome here for this and also for the recovery church service uh, hosted by Chaplain Lee on Saturday. They open the doors at 6:15. We we would like to see. As many of you come and, and bring your families as you want. And if you're brand new here and you, you, you're thinking, I can't do anything for 30 days, that's not true with regard to the recovery meeting and chaplain's service. So the Recovery Church is an innovative look at um, your new walk. And, and we would encourage you to come check it out regardless of your faith tradition because uh, there's a reason he's a chaplain. He's been doing this in the correction system for over 30 years. He, he knows how to help you with a lot of things. So um, that said, uh, we also have a recovery meeting in case I talk too fast to people and you're here and you want some stuff broken down. Wayne and Brian do a Wednesday night discussion group here where any questions you have that come up on the particular step instruction or you want more help, Wayne and Brian will help you with that if you guys are here. And if you guys want to come volunteer to be sponsors and things like that here, you'll still have to come through and go through Wayne and Brian's thing. So it's kind of a place for everyone to meet. We are a target-rich environment here. If you're looking for people to help. All right, so tonight, unfortunately, we're going to be looking at step one. And I say unfortunately because I've done this I don't know, dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times over the years, either collectively or individually, and I've never gotten through a first step experience without experiencing some, some highs and some lows, right? So if you get through a first step experience, we'll try and keep it light, because we're not trying to make, stay stuck, but if you get through the entire experience and have experienced no lows, then there's a chance you missed something because powerless and unmanageability are not theories, they're not concepts, they're experiences that we've, we've had and we're gonna bring them to consciousness collectively. Make sense? All right, so I'm gonna start with the title of the book just in case, because sometimes we, we get to calling it the big book and, it, and that's what it's affectionately known as, but the title of the book helps us understand why it's remained unchanged or it should remain unchanged. Um, the title of the book is Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. So over the years, 
People have added their spin to it. And when that happens, they water down the power of the testimony. And so what we want you to understand is don't, don't be that guy. Don't be the one deceiving and don't be deceived. Go back to the original testimony. And the reason we tell you that is that they document in here. I'm not going to go through it tonight, but you can check it for yourself and forward to the second edition. They, they document how back in 1939 all the way to 1955, including a world war, they enjoyed a 65% efficacy rate over 15 years, including a world war. In the modern science, after all these advances, we're somewhere less than 10. What happened? People intentionally or unintentionally took the power out of the testimony. So it's their testimony, this is their story, that's why it's titled the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered. And then we're going to start looking at who tells that story. Does it make sense? So we're going to be in the forward to the first edition, which is Roman numeral XIII. Yes? With everyone with me that wants to be? And it says, says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So why do we call that a, to your attention? First of all, who's the we? How many of you have been in fellowship meetings where they tell us we're a we? We're a we program. We may well be a we program, but that's not who told this story. We're not the we who told this story because all of them are dead. So what we want you to understand is not because we're legalists, but because there is power in testimony. Does it make sense? We don't have a right to alter testimony because they've laid out precisely how they recovered, not precisely how Billy Bob Joe in the back of the row recovered, precisely how they recovered, and they agreed on every word. Does it make sense? So we want everyone to... Look at their testimony, try and align our experience with theirs and see if, and you can't do that if someone doesn't tell you the truth about what the testimony is, yes? Okay. So, and then it does say something interesting. To show other alcoholics precisely how we've recovered is the main purpose of this book. Why did they say show instead of tell? Yeah, how many of you have been reluctant to listen to what someone told you, but you paid attention when they showed you something? There's another meaning for that, too, that you'll learn as you take other people through this process. Someone sat down and showed me how to find my experience in this book. That's why they wrote it, right? But they had to have the experience. Someone had to do, that, do them that honor, right? Not adulterate it, not tell them to change eyes to wheeze and all the crazy shit we've heard people do. Just show you how to find the experience in the book. Does it make sense? Okay. And then, then it goes on to tell us, for them, we hope these pages will be proved so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. Sounds like they got convincing evidence from the experience of being shown the experience of these authors, didn't it? So sometime tonight, I'm going to try and show you something profound that maybe you haven't seen before. And if I succeed, you're going to feel it. And the interesting thing is, I'm going to know you felt it. And I'm going to call it to your attention because we would teach you to talk to you about the power we call God without giving you a demonstration of the power. 
And one of the ways we can demonstrate that to you is that power of revelation within you of which I am aware, and now we've shown the oneness, haven't we? Make sense? Okay. All right. So I'm going to jump from there over to the doctor's opinion, because I don't want to get into the forwards. Tonight you can do that on your own. And I want to go to the doctor's opinion. Um, I'm going to jump all, all the way over to XXVI, and I'm going to go after Silkworth's letter, his first letter, and I'm going to talk to you about the alcoholics, the author's opinion of the doctor's opinion, and then it's going to lead us into an expanded opinion that they, they asked the doctor for. Fair enough? So these are alcoholics talking to us, and we don't know if any of you are alcoholics, but I will assure I am. I've been redeemed from this hopeless state of mind and body of alcoholism, but I, I am very definitely one of these people who has been redeemed, and I'm going to see if I can help you find this experience through these, uh, these authors' eyes. Does it make sense? So it says, the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. So they're lead us, leading us back into more text from Dr. Or from, yeah, from Dr. Bob. <coughs> I mean, uh, Silkworth. And you'll have to bear with me because this thing going on. <coughs> in his statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. That the alcoholic... The body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So the author's opinion was that we must believe that my body is every bit as abnormal as my mind. How many of you don't have that much trouble believing your mind's abnormal? <laughs> but how many of you have a harder time believing that your body was abnormal, that you were predisposed? A lot of people have trouble with this idea that this is an illness, right? Oh, that's just it's an excuse, right? Okay, so, so what these guys had to be convinced of is they needed to know from evidence of their own experience that indeed my body is predisposed to overindulge. It's not, a, even though I thought it a conscious thought, it was not. Fair enough? <coughs> so, sorry about that. I don't know what I got going on, but it's not going to be fun. <clears throat> so it said it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or outright mental defectives. Is that, can you relate to them? <coughs> okay. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. So even if I had aberrant behavior even if I had a mental health diagnosis, I think there's, there's more to the picture. Fair enough? And I have to apologize. I'm going to be choking, apparently. <coughs> in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So now they're going to go into the doctor's theory, and I want to see if you guys have heard things in the rooms that may have confused you in the past and see if we can clarify it for you. So the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. So how many of you have heard this theory that the doctor had about an allergy? How many of you thought it was silly? <coughs> so I'm sorry, guys. 
whoever was offering me water earlier may need to get it for me. Um, anyway, so how many of you are drinkers? Oh, good, a good representation. That's always good. When you drank, did you find that alcohol energized you? So alcohol is a sedative. So that's, that's an abnormal reaction to a sedative. So a medical person looking at that would describe that as an allergic reaction. Perhaps this is the manifestation of an allergy. So does it make sense? Did you ever have friends watch you drink and go, dude, we nod out and like you go for a drive. What's anyone? You, okay. So it really was abnormal, was it? Where's where's my where's my heroin addicts, my fentanyl addicts? You guys got pretty active after you got it in you, didn't you? Out there vacuuming the lawn and shit. Where's my meth addicts? Do you notice how that stuff would calm you down? Hmm. That's a pretty abnormal reaction, right? So does now, now does that doctor's theory interest you? You may not buy the whole pony, but I, I'm willing to listen to this theory now because I have had this abnormal reaction. It's different than other people's reaction. Is that true? I'm not trying to convince anyone. I'm trying to make sure you understand what the authors are trying to tell us. Okay. Um, but it says, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say this explanation makes good sense. Is it possible that my inability to control it, no matter what the need or desire to limit my drinking, my inability, was driven by something other than mental? I had many, many times that I mentally wanted to control it, I simply could not. I had reasons to mentally control it, I simply could not. Anyone have that experience? Okay, all right. So it, it explains many things for which we could not otherwise account. Though we work out our solution on a spiritual as well as altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. Why would they tell us that? Because I'm gonna have to detox some, right? I'm going to have to detox some because the physical reaction will still be in play. Yeah? Come on, where's my heroin addicts? Us opiate addicts know that for sure. You better lock my ass up during that dry period, huh? Okay. All right, so more often than not, it's imperative that man's be cleared before he's approached. He thus has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So what do we have to offer? Yeah, initially, to Sean's point, it's sobriety, and, and it's not sobriety and misery, it's sobriety, it's freedom from me. But I don't even know I'm looking for freedom from me other than I'm trying to kill me on a daily basis, and I'd like to lose that guy. Okay. Um, I'm going to jump into the doctor's opinion, but I'm going to go to the bottom of that page, XXVII. It says, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. So what are they telling us about in their model? What <clears throat> that, that, that manifestation of that allergy is this outward appearance of a craving beyond my mental control. I, I always, I used to brag about how much I drank until I had to start lying about how much I drank. Anyone? 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So I'm not saying you can't, because Bill, we're going to find out later tonight, was approached drunk and drinking, and he still had the effect. It just took a little while. So you're never going to be able to move into a conscious relationship with anything, particularly our power within you, without moving into it consciously. So we got a logical approach. We've laid out a case why it's more logical to believe than not to believe. And first, I'm going to have to have some desperation. So I'm going to have to find out that this experience I'm having, indeed, I was destined to have. And now I'm going to have to make a decision at the crossroads. To, is this a calling or a curse? Does that make sense? OK. All right, so we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. So he's expanding. So a manifestation of this abnormal reaction is this appearance that I'm drinking beyond my mental control. And you guys that were drinkers, you know what I'm talking about. You're sitting there and you know everyone's watching and you cannot stop taking their glass because yours is too empty. Or the bottle's gone and now you're not even drinking your brand. You may not even be drinking from what other people consider drinkable. Well, or worse, you know, the shit with the cigarette butt still in it. But Okay. The phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So have you ever put whatever into your body and found you did more than you intended? Okay, so that never happens with the average temperate drinker. So what we can do now is cross average temperate off our list. We have not yet determined this is alcoholism, but we know we are not average or temperate. Where's, where's my people that say, I never tried to control it? There you go. I'm with you. What brought you here? Was there a time when it would have been handier to use just a little than you did? Did you overshoot the mark? Did you know when you were going to overshoot the mark? So did you ever, did you really have control? This is, this is just looking at what's going on when our mind tries to lie. It didn't happen to me every time. Okay. Fair enough. Didn't happen to me every time either. But did I enjoy it? Fuck no. If there was any control, there was no enjoy. Okay, all right. So these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, has that happened to you? Formed a habit, you found you cannot break. Anybody? Okay. And once having lost their self-confidence, has that happened? Their reliance upon things human. And that's interesting because that's not only the human will, but that's the love of others. The, how many of you even had you put yourself away, got sent to multiple detoxes, and s sort of suspected this is never going to work? <clears throat> okay. Their, their problems pile up on them, become astonishingly difficult to solve. Does that describe in a rough way some of our journey here? Yes. Problems piling up, astonishingly difficult to solve. Okay. Then it talks a little bit about our mental states. <coughs> Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. How many of you had people to beg, beg you to stop? 
If you loved me, you'd quit. Any of you ever heard that? Did you love them? Did you hope they wouldn't be too easily disappointed? <coughs> yeah, even when I'm making the promise, even, even with tears running down my cheeks, I'm making the promise and I know it's a lie. Or I'm doubting it, right? I'm doubting this is possible, okay? The message which can hold interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. Depth and weight isn't just fancy words, guys. Depth and weight means it, regardless of my ability to comprehend, it has to grab me in the way only truth can grab me. I have no idea what that man said, but I know the way it impacted me. I have to know more. Does that make sense? Because that has nothing to do with the man and everything to do with the power. Okay, so in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So that's the news that they're bringing to us. That's the news the doctor's bringing to us. And when I, I was talking to Brian before we started, I said that, you know, I think tonight, because we haven't done it in a while, we're going to just launch right into Bill's story. Because sometimes when I do this, after all these years that we've been doing it, um, a lot of people have gone through clinical models, they've been to treatments, but we respond better to stories, which is why we got whole fellowships based on people telling stories, and <laughs> I relate to that. And, and so I like to go down to Bill, who's the author of most of this, and let's see his story, and then let's find the commonality, and because, you know, Bill authored this and, and you know, co-founded a fellowship that we all somewhat participate in, right? Okay. So I'm going to start on page five in Bill's story. And it says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. So how many of you sort of recall when you're using your drinking, whatever your behavioral thing was, was no longer something that you wanted to do. It was something you had to do. Like it was like work. Okay. So he describes it for him, bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. So it meant he wasn't drinking very good gin. Any of you relate? Where's my drinkers? <laughs> well, you know, when you can buy that for a handle for $6, you're close to what Bill was drinking. So sometimes a small deal would net a few, few hundred dollars, and I'd pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. How many of you had to go run a hustle for a day or so, or even a few hours to pay off some people so that you could get a little loner? A little bump, something? Then he said, did it go on for a while for you? Like, just didn't want to end? Bill said, it went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. Any of you relate to waking up early, shaking violently? Did you suspect something wasn't going good? How many of you didn't want to cop to it? What was the solution to waking up shaking violently? Stay ahead of the curve. Yeah? Okay. A tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. I like the wording he uses because he was thoughtful about the wording. How many of you realized that 
whatever you had to do to self-medicate to get ready to go do whatever you were going to go do was a requirement. This is not optional. Okay. All right. So he said, he said that, uh, nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. So think about what he's saying. He wakes up every morning, shaking violently, has to nurse it in order to quit throwing up long enough to go do what he's got to go do. But I got this shit. <laughs> Any of you remember the mindset? Or am I the only one that lived that way? Okay. But how many of you had somebody watching you go through that and you'd, you'd have like a lucid moment, and they're like, oh, they're going to make it this time. But did they, they'll say something like, you got this. And you're thinking, I hope so. This isn't going to, okay. So then he says, gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. So that's what gradually things getting worse look like. Any of you sort of recall looking through blurry eyes and watching your life just vaporize and there's seemingly nothing you can do about it. They're starting to describe powerlessness becoming a reality in my life. Yeah? Okay. Then I got a promising business opportunity. How many of you got right in the middle of the heat of your addiction got a new opportunity? Any of that ever happened to anyone? Said stocks were at a low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits, and then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. How many of you got an opportunity? Went out to celebrate said opportunity, missed the fucking opportunity. Any of you ever do that? Come on, that that can be tragic. It can be right. I, I know people that were supposed to go to custody hearings and went and got drunk and didn't show up for the hearing. I know. I mean. Go with them. Okay. All right. So it says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. How many of you had such wake-ups? I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. How many of you got to that? Not even one. If I don't drink, I can't get drunk. I figured it out. You ever heard that bullshit? usually from the guy getting a 24-hour medallion in a week. Um, before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. So how many of you really meant it? Not safe to have even one, done forever, really meant it. Somewhere out there, you thought, huh, perhaps I overreact. Anyone relate to what I'm saying? Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. How many of you remember that time in your addiction where you just seemingly all of a sudden, you knew it wasn't saved, not even one, now I'm high or drunk or whatever, and I really hadn't even given it any conscious thought. Any of you relate to that? So he said, where had been my high resolve? So when they do something like that, in order to find their experience, when you can take yourself to that place, ask yourself, why? Why did that happen? What happened to my certain knowledge that it wasn't safe? 
one of the things that happens to us is we get here and we say we believe in mental illness, that that, but, but we, we, we don't demonstrate that we believe in mental illness. Addictive disorder is an illness. And, and you're not going to be able to will it away because it's an illness. You suffer from a diminished will as a result of your relationship to this particular form of spirit. That's why they call it spirits. Um, so I simply didn't know. I, it hadn't come to mind. Someone pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? So how many of you thought that of yourself? Any of you thought, maybe I'm crazy? How many of you went to try and find someone to tell you how crazy you were? That included at least a drink or something? Okay. All right. So I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near, being near just that. So Bill Wilson is starting to let us know what to them their definition of alcoholic insanity is. It is not doing the same thing expecting a different result because if you're an alcoholic and you took it far enough you will know you did the same thing with no expectation of a different result. True? But it was an appalling lack of perspective. Because to liberate me in the moment was definitely going to imprison me in the future. Right? But I, for a moment's release, whatever. Right? Okay. All right. So, so he says, renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. So you know what he's talking about? It's weird language. But you know what he's talking about when confidence is replaced by cocksureness? Yeah, I confuse the experience of grace with the illusion of control. And I all of a sudden think I'm doing it, and then the attack comes and I'm gone again. I never had anything to do with the stop, and I never have any, you know, just, that's just the way it was. So I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it had happened. So how many of you got there? You'd already had a drink or two in, and now you're going, how am I going to explain this? Damn it. What did you decide after that happened? Might as, well, don't waste it. Might as well get twisted, right? Okay. So that's what he said. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I'd manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. Look at how he's perfecting the delusion in his mind. He thinks he has any choice after he takes that drink or whether he takes the next drink. <clears throat> what does your experience show? After you hit that pipe, just, just put that bitch down. Stop abruptly. <laughs> Everyone laughs, right? But he's told himself that he has an option at that point. It's completely ludicrous when we look at the experiences we've had, right? That ain't happening. But that's, now we're in that self-condemning spiral that us addicts go into. I decided. Okay. Jump off the roof. Halfway down, tell me you decided to hit the ground. Tell me how it affected the outcome. Does it make sense? Okay. So she's trying to show to you the insanity so you can see it from outside so you can understand your own ideas and how your self-condemning ideas keep you in the loop. Okay. So he's going to tell us about an experience. I need you to go with me, if you will. Try and bring it to consciousness. Internalize his experience. 
He says, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. So those of you who dare, take yourself to your, not the first time you went and got twisted off, but when you desperately didn't want to do it anymore, and you found yourself whacked again, and now you wake up and go there to the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of that experience. Some of you did it. I'm feeling you go there. It's deep, right? So what did he tell us? That it was unforgettable. It immediately came to consciousness, didn't it? See how he shared an experience with us? Why we don't want to alter his testimony? He shared an experience with us so that we would know the redemption he's experienced because we know the depths that he's been at. Who could know those depths but us who have been in those depths? Right? Okay. So the courage to do battle was not there. So how many of you got there? Faced with that, it's like, screw it. It says, my brain raced uncontrollably and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. So you guys get it. If you were drinkers, but any, any drug, I've woken up. I'm feeling hopeless. I'm in remorse and horror, but I also have desperation. I have to go get more. I'm going to get really fucking sick. So in this condition, as sick as I am, I've got to go out and get to the trap house or wherever the all night, I gotta go find something to get down my neck before I'm too sick to go find something to get down my neck. Does that make sense? So he's trying to describe that experience that any of us who know, knows. Okay, so he says, my writhing nerves were stilled at last. He found these glasses of ale. Well. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. So that's the thought that the rest of life is going to go on, but I needed that drink, and I'm going to stay in it. I needed that fix. I needed that. Anyone with him? Okay. So then he goes on. The reason I want you there with him is he said, that was a hard thought. When you realize that shit owned you, and it wasn't a theory, and it wasn't me trying to make light. This stuff owns me. I'm all by myself with this nonsense. It is a hard thought, isn't it? Okay. So he says, should I kill myself? How many of you got to that place? Okay. No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles in oblivion. So how many of you got a little bump, feeling like I ought to kill myself? Then it felt a little better. And, uh, uh, let's just, okay. So it says, the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. So how many of you went on for a while and didn't feel like it was ever going to end and you're watching friends around you die? Okay. So it says, sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. How many of you did some of that? Maybe you didn't have a wife, but you found somebody to steal from. There's no earthly explanation of what happened to it. All right. So, so again, I, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. <coughs> Any of you get there? 
vacillating between hell with it, I'll just stay high and maybe I'll kill myself, maybe I'll OD. Then came that hellish, came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I'd burst through my window, sash and all. Any of my drinkers here ever get to delirium tremens? So in delirium tremens, you can understand why you would have a fear of that because lots of weird things happen to us in delirium tremens. Yeah. And so you guys that don't know delirium tremens, any of you that have been in meth psychosis, you know the same experience, right? It's, it's just like there's nothing real to anyone but you and it's all not good. Um, somehow I managed to drag my mattress to the lower floor lest I suddenly leap. The doctor came with a heavy sedative. The next day found me drinking both gin and sedatives. How many of you, how many of you found out the doctors were a re reasonably good supply and that really my alcoholism was just a Valium deficiency after all? How many of you went and got pain meds and found out that opiates are a great substitute for alcohol? How many of you found out that when you had to rewind it, that alcohol was a shitty substitute for opiates? Because some of us get out there on that island that very way. Others steal it out of the medicine cabinet, and it's a matter of economics, right? Um, <laughs> heroin's cheaper than prescription drugs. I'm easier to acquire. Um, <clears throat> this combination soon landed me on the rocks. Any of you get there? Better living through chemistry and eventually there just ain't enough? Okay. So, so did I. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking. I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I'd been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So this is where he meets Silkworth and Silkworth explains to him about the, the abnormal reaction. And you go, yeah, your, your life's a train wreck and you've mistreated people, but the fact of the matter is, Bill, that you didn't have any choice in the way you drank because of this abnormal reaction you have, you're predisposed to overdrink. And so this was enough for Bill to start contemplating that maybe there was hope for him. Does it make sense? Okay. So it's, it's that, that's why we wanted his story, and then you'll see other people's story where the medical model was important for some and the spiritual portion was important for others. And that, we don't, We're not here to decide what's going to tickle your fancy. We just want you to see the testimony because it, it, eventually one of us will line up. Okay. So... Um, what I do? It relieved me somewhat to learn that alcoholics, in the alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor. So why is my mind amazingly weakened? Because once I drink it, the body, the, the abnormal reaction takes over and I'm predisposed to drink more than I intended. And if I don't, I don't enjoy the experience. But once I know that for a fact, how many of you knew it wasn't safe to drink? How many of you did it anyway? So there's the will, even though I have knowledge, is amazingly weakened. Does it make sense? 
And this is what the doctor is explaining to Bill. He's not saying you're bad. He's saying you're sick, and I know you don't believe you're sick, and I know you think you drink the way you want to, but all evidence points to the fact that you drink way better than you want to, right? All right, so um, it says, my incredible behavior in the face of desperate desire to stop was explained. So that resonated with Bill. So we need something to resonate with the new person to understand their own behavior so that they'll realize that the sickness is going to require a physician. Does it make sense? Okay. And that physician is not going to be able to do anything with synthetics. So I'm going to need a physician who deals in something other than synthetics. Okay. So um, under, he said, understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. So how many of you went to a treatment? Got a better understanding of yourself? Went out with a bunch of confidence. How many of you got to revisit that experience? <laughs> so he says, for three or four months, my, the goose hung high. Those are weird words, but what do they mean? Like Sean's point, it's got this, right? Okay. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. How many of you... Got, got cleaned up. Have you ever noticed how quick we clean up? It didn't take long. We clean right up once the bruises heal and shit, right? Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. Any of you get a good dose of self-knowledge? Okay. Bill said it was not. Any of you have the experience that self-knowledge was not enough? Okay. For the frightful day came when I drank once more. So it was working until it wasn't. Yeah? Okay. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. Now, it's interesting how he says my declining moral and bodily health. How many of you had things you were never going to do, and then you twisted off again, and you realized that you could pass through that barrier? <laughs> Sometimes at a rapid rate of speed. Like a ski jump. Anyone relate? I know we chuckle about it, but some people are just traumatized by who they become. And, and so we have to be sensitive to that because we will elevate them in the spirit and we'll get them refilled with joy and peace and it'll be all right. But in the beginning, we've got to talk to them real because all of us know that experience of really crashing through the barriers of who I want to be as a human. Yeah? Okay. So... It says, after a time, I returned to the hospital. So this is his second treatment. How many of you had more than one go at this recovery thing? So the author of this book and the father of modern recovery has had at least two trips to the detox so far. So you can be excused if it took you a minute. Sometimes we feel shamed when we've had that experience. But I'm here to tell you, I had so many 24-hour chips that Sean was able to keep the homeless shelter <laughs> recipients for weeks. And have you ever been to a meeting at the homeless shelter? Everybody gets up for a chip. I'm serious, because they got nothing. So if you're giving me something, I'm taking it. Hi, Brian. <laughs> I'll sell it to somebody. 
<laughs> All right. Just a little truth and full disclosure, okay? This was, this was to finish the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing life, wife was informed that it would all end in heart failure during delirium tremens or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. How many of you got to the conclusion that I'm probably going to die of this? How many of you had physicians say, you're going to die if you're not careful? Come on, where's my fentanyl addicts? You guys know that ain't no bullshit, right? You keep that up, you are going to die. Everybody does. I want, so we, we got to get it arrested. That, and I'm not talking about theories. I didn't have the fentanyl was patches when I was doing it, but all the opiates have the same effect. That's just so lethal, right? But you ain't, you ain't getting out of your opiate addiction until you get relieved from it, guys. You're going to... My, the guy that took me through this step said, Joe, you, we got to get you to God before you find a more creative way to get there. I go, what do you mean by that? He said, we got to get you to God or get you to God. Take your pick. Anyway, so they did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. So how many of you had that final comeuppance with yourself? What do you mean I can't do this on my own? What do you mean I can't? How many of you had that argument with yourself? So he's going to talk about the way, that, the way we think. I who had thought so well of myself, my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Any of you have some successes? Do okay? Bill was a war hero. He was made a lot of money, done a lot of things. When it was all done, he was all done. Um, now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of thoughts who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. I mean, you get to where you'd done so much damage in your family that you just thought it could never be righted. Okay? So did Bill. And that's why it's important to read the rest of the story because most of us come here that tore up from the floor up, right? Okay? No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. So it's interesting how he describes it. He's not even giving himself a pass. He's telling you how he was thinking. And he tells you that no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. He's telling you about being squarely confronted with yourself with no earthly plan for how to get out of yourself. Can anyone relate to what he's talking about? It's kind of a profound way he, and he you know, so he, he starts to describe that. He said, quicksand stretched around me in all directions. Everything I once could grab onto, not going to work, or it's not there anymore, right? Okay. So I met, I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. But I like to call that to your attention because I get people sometimes that tell me, I just am not going to believe in a power greater than myself. And I, that's fine, but what are you doing in a 12-step meeting? You're wasting valuable high time. If you don't at least know that alcohol, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl is a power greater than you, you're wasting your own time, not mine. There's a lot of good high time out there. Go get it, man. Sleeping under the bridge in 110. 
So Bill first had to admit that alcohol owned him in order to be able to receive the idea that perhaps something greater than me could take me in another direction. Since something greater than me has clearly taken me through the moral floor I thought I had for myself. Yeah? Okay. So it says, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. And I'm going to go trembling. I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. So how many of you have been sobered by fear? How many of you stayed sober with fear but then grew spiritually? Because that's the interesting thing, that some people, if they start growing spiritually, they'll outgrow the fear. So I, we're not condemning being sobered by fear because... One of the manifestations of fear is desperation. One of the things that happens when you're desperate enough is you climb right to the top of the line no matter who you got to step over. Right? Okay. So he said, so fear sobered me for a bit, and then came the insidious insanity of that first drink, and on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Now he's talking about his third trip, yeah, or his third run post-treatment. Um, everyone became resigned to the certainty that I'd have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was to be the beginning of my last debauch. So how many of you can sort of think back to what was your last run and get with him to realize that you had no earthly way of knowing that was your last one given how many had preceded so he's, all, he's talking about this looking back. Okay. He said, I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. So at that time there was, you know, three dimensions, and then there was a fourth dimension, which is really basically relational time and space, right? Yeah? Okay. So he's catapulted beyond time and space. How many of you have experienced that in your recovery? Right? Because that's what everyone will tell you, right? The secret to living life on life's terms is to be present. If you're beyond time and space, then you're here and now. Does that make sense? So it sounds like it's a program that might work for people where just not drinking won't. Any of you try just not using no matter what? Okay. So he says that in this way of life that's incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So he's leading us into a new manner of living beyond time and space, living present in the here and now, and it is increasingly more wonderful. The same guy that was able to stay sober and free 10, 15 years ago is, I wouldn't be able to stay there. I've had to progress, or I, right? Because you can't coast uphill. Does that make sense? Same way I couldn't stay at the same level of consumption. Okay. All right, so near the end of the bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen, and with a certain satisfaction, I reflected that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. So how, how many drinkers I got? Were you, were you hiders? Drinkers are hiders. If you don't know, where's my meth addicts? You suckers are hiders, too. <laughs> Whole different deal. But anyway, that's what we got in common. Um, we used to have to cut the seams out. If you remember, Sean, we'd take them down to the detox and the meth addicts and got shit sewn into their seams. 
to going into treatment. It was you, wasn't it, Brian? Uh, okay, so my wife was at work, and I wondered whether I dared hide a, a full bottle of gin near the head of her bed. I would need it before daylight. So if you took your drinking far enough, you, you knew you were going to wake up sick, and you are going to need a nudge, try and get well, maybe stop the vomiting long enough to, yeah. Okay, so it says, my musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. So he, that's in italics, and you got to get the picture. He, he's, his old school friend was that one guy who drank worse than Bill. So how many of you, no matter how bad you got, always maintained at least one person, and you could look at him and go, at least I'm not that bad yet. <laughs> so that's who Evie is for Bill. And so he knows that, you know, this is weird, right? That he's calling and he's sober. He says, it was years since I can remember him coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. you got to get why he's making this point. This guy can't be sober. Bill's a little excited because the wife's out of the house. He's got booze hidden and a drinking buddy that's worse than me. This is going to be fucking epic. So you with him? Okay. Rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. That's how impossible it was. He had heard about Ebby's commitment for alcoholic insanity, and he assumed that he had escaped and come to New York to tell Bill the story. Because he couldn't possibly be sober. Okay. So, of course, he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. Notice how he said, with him. And it says, unmindful of his welfare. Guy just got out of a commitment for alcoholic insanity, and now we're going to cut a jug. How many of you can recall not thinking of your fellows much? Okay. So I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. So think about what an oasis is. Is it an oasis, a strange section of water in the middle of certain death in the sand? Shade. What is it normally? It's normally a mirage. So look at Bill talking to you about his mindset. Everything looks just ducky, right? An appalling lack of perspective. Okay, the words he uses are just really cool. When you, okay, so the door opened and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. Now let's admit it, regardless of what you think about language or tone, to describe your drinking buddy as fresh-skinned and glowing <laughs> is a little bizarre, don't you think? That's just not how we would describe our drinking buddy, is it? So then he says there was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different what had happened. So he's instantly inward What's going on? What he doesn't know there that he'll later disclose is when 
he opened the door, he was confronted not with Ebby, but with the Holy Spirit in Ebby. And it instantly impacted him, even though he was drunk and drinking. Does that make sense? Because he doesn't know what it is, but he knows that it is. Does it make sense? Okay. So then he says, I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. So have you ever done that? I'm going to run out of time, aren't I? I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this about? He looked straight at me, simply but smiling. He said, I've got religion. How many of you can relate to somebody drunk and drinking, and somebody walks in and says, I've got religion, and you're thinking this is going to be a long night. So he says, I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic cracked pot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. So now they're going to tell you about the approach, because I'm going to wrap up, because I just wanted you to see how Ebby delivered the experience to Bill that has restored millions. He did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. So I'm going to end it with you there. The solution he did, he showed Bill precisely how he recovered by simply showing up and bearing witness to the redemption he had experienced. Does that make sense? He did no ranting. He did no convincing. He simply showed up, and he told him a religious idea. God dwells in you and a practical program of action. I got a manner of living that will reveal that fact to you, through you, if you'll participate. And that's it. That's the whole deal. Thanks. Well,